In our time this morning, we're going to look at what Jesus has to say about the cost of following after him. So I'll start out with a question here for you this morning. My question is, are you willing to follow Jesus on his terms? Are you willing to follow Jesus on his terms? Unfortunately, in our lifetimes, we have adopted this Burger King gospel mentality that says we can have Christianity however we want it, right? Burger King mentality is have it your way. And unfortunately, that mentality has creeped on in the church, and this Burger King gospel has crippled the church as a whole. It's produced weak Christians and tarnished what it actually means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So well, this morning, today, we're going to reverse that Burger King gospel. The goal for this morning is to rightly understand the cost of following Jesus. We're going to take some time to rightly understand the cost of following Jesus and encourage one another to follow him well. We want to take off our Burger King gospel lenses and come to the truth of what Jesus has to say about following after him. And so to help us with this goal, we're going to talk about three requirements that Jesus maps out in Luke chapter 14. We'll talk about the reward of following him. We'll go into a time of application and then we'll introduce the interns. So first, let's take a look at what a disciple is. Jesus is talking to the multitudes. He's saying, if you want to follow after me and you don't hate your mother, father, brother, sister, and your own life also, so on and so on, you cannot be my disciple. But what is a disciple? Where simply put, a disciple is a follower or a pupil. A disciple is a learner of someone or something. And the word of God has a lot to say about disciples. In fact, this word is used 269 times in the New Testament. So the the New Testament has a lot to do with disciples. Well, even Jesus in his great commission, he says, you therefore go out and make disciples of all nations. And so it's important for us, if this was Jesus's commission and command for us to make disciples, we need to understand what a disciple is. And before we make disciples, we have to be a disciple ourselves. So there's a difference between being a believer and a disciple. Track with me, okay? There's a difference between a believer and a disciple. All disciples are believers, but not all believers. Believers. I was going to say believers, like Justin Believer. Sorry, Justin Bieber. But not all believers are disciples. And being a disciple is the next step in Christian maturity after becoming a believer. It's, it's saying, yes, I have understood that Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Now, here's my life. So that's what a disciple is. So Jesus shares a hard message to the multitudes in regards to being a disciple or follower of him. And I love that Jesus doesn't water down his message. Jesus shares a heavy truth with the multitudes that no doubt caused some to turn back. And I love that Jesus wasn't swayed by the multitudes to share a false message just to increase in popularity. Jesus shares the truth, and he desires for us to know the truth of what it means to follow after him. In this passage, this tells me that Jesus desires men and women to be more than just fans. Jesus desires followers. Jesus wants to move past this temporal infatuation and move into a place of intimacy and personal relationship with him. So God's not looking for fans, he's looking for followers. So what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to be a disciple? Well, in this passage, Jesus maps out three different things. Number one, 
Jesus requires superior love. Jesus requires superior love. Look at verses 25 and 26 once again. I'll read it. Now, when great multitudes went with him, he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Imagine what the people might have been feeling when they heard these words. No doubt there were brothers and sisters, mothers, fathers, wives in the crowd, and they're maybe looking at each other. Maybe some were shocked. Maybe some were confused. Maybe some were hurt. Maybe some of the teenagers in the crowd were like, hate my mother and father. I'm on the right track, (laughs) you know? No doubt this first requirement of a follower of Jesus woke people up. And so what does it mean to hate your father, mother, wife, children, brother, sister, and your life also? Doesn't Jesus call us to love? Well, this word hate can be translated to love less, to love less. So Jesus uses this hard terminology to express a hard comparison. It's saying this, my love for God, my love for Jesus is so good and it's so great that in comparison to this love for my family and my own life also, it looks like hate. One of my favorite Bible teachers, Alistair Begg, in his commentary on this, he says, Our love for Jesus, I love this, our love for Jesus, our devotion to Jesus, our commitment and loyalty to Christ is to be of such forceful, energizing strength that even our best love for our spouse or our earnest longing for our children or our genuine interest for our own well-being will actually be, be seen as total disregard or hatred in comparison. So Jesus isn't saying that we should go around and hating people, right? No, Jesus tells us the greatest commandment is to love him and to love others and to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. So Jesus is speaking in regards to priority. He's speaking in regards to quality and quantity of love. He's saying that if we have more love for anything else other than him, we cannot be his disciple. This is a hard message. We love our family. We love our brothers, our sisters. At least we hope, I hope that you guys do, right? We have strong affection for them. But we have to remember and be reminded that no earthly father, no earthly mother, no earthly brother or sister took on the cross for our sins, but Jesus did. And this is why he's worthy of our greatest love. He deserves the best love. Jesus alone deserves the most marvelous love that we can give. And, as, and we know this, as we love him, right, our love for others actually increases. But in comparison to our love for him, to the way we love others, it must look like hate. That's how much we're supposed to be in love with God. How do we get there? Well, we'll talk about that in the application. But the first requirement of following Jesus or being a follower, according to his terms, is that Jesus requires superior love. Number two Jesus requires exclusive loyalty. Number two, Jesus requires exclusive loyalty. Look at with me in verse 27 to 32. I'll read it again. Jesus says, And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, 
While the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. Number two, Jesus requires exclusive loyalty. There is no room for half-heartedness in following Jesus. There's no room for half-heartedness in following Jesus. Let me explain. Unless you're loyal to Christ, Jesus, you cannot be his disciple. Where do I get this? Well, Jesus says you must bear your cross and come after me. So what does that mean, Jesus? What does it mean to bear our cross and come after me? Well, the cross was an instrument of death. Right? A really painful and gruesome and public death. You know, these multitudes, when Jesus is sharing this, they would have been repulsed. They knew what this looked like. They've seen people crucified. They've seen criminals on the hill being crucified. And if you saw a man, if they saw a man carrying his cross, they thought of him as a dead man walking. He was as good as dead. These first century believers, this multitude, they knew that a man carrying his cross had no more aspirations He had no more hopes, no more dreams, no more plans for his future. He was as good as dead. There were no other options for a man carrying his cross. His destination was set. He was to die. And Jesus requires the same exclusive loyalty and the fact that you and I can't bear our cross, follow after him, and have it our own way. That doesn't make sense. Jesus requires exclusive loyalty. If we're bearing our cross and following after him, there's no more room or time for old Aaron. There's no more time for the fleshly version of me or the old man, the Bible would say. I can't be divided in my loyalties. Jesus says, if you want to come after me, you have to bear your cross and come after me. Jesus said it differently in this way in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, talking about exclusive loyalty. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters. It's impossible. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So Jesus requires exclusive loyalty. That's why in this passage, he tells us to count the cost. He says, consider these two examples. He says, really, 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 really think about this before you make a decision. And Jesus gives us two examples, building and warfare. And I find it interesting that Jesus gives these two specific examples because building and warfare have a lot to do with following Jesus. I find it interesting because part of following Jesus, part of being a disciple of Jesus, is building God's kingdom and engaging in spiritual warfare. And there are many implications to this, and I'll share a couple. One, if we are to build his kingdom as a follower, then we have to let go of our own kingdom. We talked about this last week, where seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We're first seeking first the king and then his kingdom. But in order to seek his kingdom, we have to say goodbye to our old kingdoms. We've got to kiss it goodbye. No more kingdom. And a lot of us struggle with this because it's ingrained in our very nature to build our own kingdom. But Jesus is saying, if you want to follow after him, there's not room for two kingdoms. There's not room for two thrones. There's only one room for one kingdom, one throne. And if you want to build my kingdom, you let your kingdom, your throne go. And you take on my kingdom and you let me sit on the throne. The second implication of building and warfare, part of being a follower, a disciple of Jesus, is that you have to be ready for spiritual warfare. I think a lot of Christians are deceived when it comes to spiritual warfare. Maybe they think it's not even happening, and that tells me that it is happening, and then you're letting the devil win if you think it's not happening. 
our enemies, the devil, his fallen angels, right? The flesh and the world system will do anything and everything to get us off track from following Jesus. And brothers and sisters, it gets messy. It gets messy. Warfare is messy. The enemy is scheming. He's planning your destruction. And if you want to follow Jesus, you even put a bigger target on your back and say, I'm serving Jesus. So I'm going to be a part of this ministry. I'm going to be a part of this plan. So you make yourself a target of attack for spiritual warfare. Jesus says, really, really, really consider this. You're building. You're going to engage in warfare. Really consider the cost. So Jesus is giving us a choice. He's giving his listeners a choice. And this tells me Jesus would rather you count the cost and not follow him than count the cost and follow him half-heartedly. Just like the lukewarm church we talked about a few weeks ago, it's disgusting to Jesus to have one foot in the world and one foot in his will. He says, I would rather you be hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I'm going to vomit you out. And I so desire our pastoral staff, we're praying that you guys are not lukewarm. We're praying that you guys are all in, bought in into the kingdom of God, compelled by Jesus' love to be about his business. I encourage you, take those steps of faith to be full in. There's no more time to waste. We all need to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And this shouldn't be a hard thing. If anything, 2020 exposed that our kingdoms are fragile. 2020 exposed that our kingdoms fall short, that they have nothing to offer. And so let's not waste time building our own kingdoms, building our own thrones. Let's say goodbye to those things and be a part of God's plan, God's will, his way, his kingdom. This is what it means to be a disciple, Jesus is saying. He says, number one, I require superior love. Number two, Jesus requires exclusive loyalty. And number three, Jesus requires total trust. Jesus requires total trust. Where do I get that? Well, in verse 33, Jesus says, So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. I love how the NLT, the New Living Translation, puts it. The New Living Translation says, So you cannot become my disciple without giving up everything you own. And brothers and sisters, everything means everything. Money, stuff, family, everything that your heart clings to that gives you significance and security, everything. What does this mean? Well, it it doesn't mean that a man should just sell all his possessions and give away all his money and, and desert his loved ones and become a beggar and a hermit and a wanderer, but it does mean that he must give Christ control over his whole life with everything that he is and all that he possesses. Jesus requires total trust. To say, Jesus, everything about me, my possessions, my time, my reputation, My everything, everything about me, it's yours. You have jurisdiction and authority over it. It requires total trust. But when we hand our lives over to the Lord, we hand it over to a faithful Father who has the best intentions for us. And brothers and sisters, this happens in the realm of faith. And part of Christian maturity is moving past the realm of flesh and moving into the realm of faith, even past your feelings into the realm of faith where we're acknowledging by faith God's word has the best intentions for me. God's will, his way, and his time is the best for me. So I'm going to put my feelings aside, and I'm going to be obedient by faith to give Christ everything. These requirements are harsh. Superior love, exclusive loyalty, total trust. These are hard things to swallow, but I remind you, that these are given by a loving and gracious God who has the best intentions for us. 
God knows in his sovereignty, if we're not full in, giving him superior love, exclusive in our loyalty and trusting in him, then we're led astray by our own desires naturally. And left to our own desires, it will bring about our destruction, our downfall. And so Jesus really is loving us in giving these requirements because without these requirements, we're, we're a dumpster on fire, right? It, it's, it's painful to watch a Christian who is not taking God's word seriously. Their, their life spirals and they find themselves like the prodigal son in the pig's pen. Well, Jesus has more than the pig's pen for us. And if we are about his requirements, about loving him and loving others, we're on the right track. And again, this happens in the realm of faith. We don't always feel like giving God superior love. We don't always feel being exclusive in our loyalty. We kind of like to play both sides. We don't feel like trusting the Lord with everything. But again, make that step of faith to say, Lord, all I am, all I have is yours. And you'll see the reward of following him. So we talked about three things Jesus requires superior love. He requires exclusive loyalty. He requires total trust. So here's the reward in following him. And I love that Jesus gives us rewards. My mom, she knew that there had to be a reward system in order for me to do chores. She was very smart. I'm very just chaotic, you know, I'm just doing my own thing. So if there wasn't a goal or a reward, I wouldn't do my chores. And so, you know, I got a candy bar or whatever. Um, I got my Game Boy stuff, you know, if I did, just did those, uh, if I was obedient to those chores or those rules. And the same thing with Jesus. Jesus rewards us, and this is so sweet. And if, 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 if eternal salvation wasn't enough, he gives us a reward for following him. The reward for following him is found in Luke chapter 18, verses 28 to 30. The reward for following Jesus, Luke, 18 for, uh, Luke chapter 18, verses 28 to 30, says this. Then Peter said... Peter has a conversation with Jesus. He says, then Peter said, see, we have left all and followed you. So he said to them, assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. The reward of following him is that we have supernatural abundant provision for now and eternity. I love that Jesus will take care of us. He'll take care of all of our needs. There's been so many instances in my life where I didn't know what's going to happen, and the Lord just shows up right at the the stroke of midnight. And he's so faithful to do that. And I love that in eternity, Jesus says, "I, I go to prepare a place for you. And I love that because I better have a greenhouse. I love my plans. And I know that Jesus is preparing a special place for me and for you, for his people and he's, he's crafting it for us in his kingdom, and it's going to be so beautiful. I love that the promise, the reward of following Jesus, that he's going to take care of all of our needs here and also for all of eternity. He says, in the age to come, eternal life. Thank you, Jesus. The second reward for following him is that we actually find the life that Christ has redeemed us for. Okay, a lot of big Christian words. So let's look at Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 to 26. The reward for following Jesus is that we actually find the life that he has bought for us. Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 and 26 says this. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone, comes, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? So I love this. When we try to seek and save our life, we lose it. But if we lose our life for his sake, we actually find it. And I love that following him is the implication is I'm going to put myself on the altar to be consumed. And whatever God wants to do, he's going to do it. He can do it. And in that surrender, we find the life Christ has talked about in John chapter 10. I come to give life and life more abundant. So we talked about three requirements that Jesus lists out. And again, I want to emphasize that this is coming from a gracious and loving God. He's commanding us because he loves us. And I'm reminded, Pastor Rob always says this, that God's commands are his enablements. So Jesus is going to command these things, but he's also going to enable you to do these things. And so what does this look like for our lives practically? Let's move into a time of application. We looked at these three requirements of following him. Number one, Jesus requires superior love. And it means if anyone or anything or even your own life means more to you, then you cannot be his disciple. Today, do we see people not giving Jesus superior love? Do you see you not giving Jesus superior love? And what might that look like? Well, in my life, it's looked like cold faith. It looks like religion. It looks like just going through the motions, just showing up because I have to show up, just loving him, just reading him because I'm obligated to do that. But that's not superior love. Superior love in a Christian life would look like renewed passion in seeking him. It's radical obedience to his word above, uh, above all else. It's, it's that honest prayer, Lord, I don't feel like loving you, but change my heart. And that prayer of honesty, really, that humility, grace rushes to you and rescues you from yourself. And you'll find that the Lord loves to answer those, those prayers of honesty, and he's going he's gonna to give you that love for him. Well, Jesus requires superior love, and I love that as we abide in him because he is love, we get that love. So there's no substitution for time spent seeking him in the word, seeking him in prayer, seeking him in fellowship, and being obedient to him. Jesus requires that supernatural, that superior love. The Holy Spirit's really good at plugging us in as we abide in Christ to receive that love that he has for us, then to be transferred back to him in radical obedience. Number two, Jesus requires exclusive loyalty. My question for you here is this. Are you prepared to take up your cross? Are you taking up your cross? Or is the cross something that you just pick up once a week, twice a week, or whenever it's convenient for you? That's not how the cross works. Paul was very familiar with the cross that he bore, that he carried. He says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. Talk about bearing your cross. He's like, I, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul was familiar with the cross. Are you familiar with bearing your cross? Or do you have shared allegiances to your old life? Maybe you can take up the cross on one day, but the other day, that's, that's my time. Well, the cross would say it's all in or nothing. Being a follower of him is all in or nothing. 
Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So Paul knew that the cross was to die to the old nature and to live for Christ. So what are you doing with the cross? Number three, Jesus requires total trust. My question for you is, are you prepared to give up everything? If the Lord highlighted an area of your life that you were not giving him lordship over, are you ready to give it up? Or do you love these earthly possessions so much that you'll forfeit what God has for you? Can you trust Jesus with your most precious possessions? If so, amen. If not, why not? He's worthy of it all. These are heavy questions, but I'm reminded to not be a disciple of Jesus means to be a disciple of darkness and a servant to the world. And to be a servant of the world and to sin costs incalculably more than what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. So yes, the cost of following him is, is, is big, it's grave, but the cost of not following him is bigger and there's hell to pay. We know that sin never pleases, and the world wants to bring us into bondage, and Satan would love us to sit in darkness. But the life that Christ has for us is a, is a life of, of, of kingdom building. It's the fruit of the Spirit being displayed even through hard seasons of life. It's a hard thing to follow Jesus, but it's a worse thing to not follow him. Not following Jesus on his terms will cost you the life Christ so desperately wants to give to you. And I love that following Jesus is a process of surrender. It's a process. No one just wakes up as super disciple, super follower, right? This, this is a process in which God is so patient to work in us and through us. And so because it's a process, I'll say this. Have grace for yourself when you fall down. The righteous man will fall seven times, but he'll get back up, right? So you will fall. So have grace with yourself. But then also have grace for others because you realize you're in process and they're in process. We're all just people in process trying to help people in process. So have grace for yourself. Have, have grace for one another. And where does this all begin? It begins in a surrender to Jesus every day, every moment, every hour if need be. Lord, my life is not my own. You've bought it with a price. Therefore, I belong to you. So whatever you want to do, whatever issues in my heart you want to prune out, you do it. Whatever closet you want to go in into my heart, you're welcome in there. I acknowledge that when you reveal, you heal. So we respond to the loving kindness of the Lord and we allow him to shape us. It's not us fixing ourselves. It's us being obedient to the Holy Spirit. He fixes us. He sanctifies us. And I love that because he's a really good and thorough teacher. So let him, let him do his work. I I love this saying, stay on the altar to be altered. Stay on the altar to be altered. Our tendency is to be on the altar on Sunday, and then it's too hot, (laughs) so I'll get off. But stay on the altar to be altered, because God is the consuming fire, but he also knows when to turn the temperature up and when to turn the temperature down. He's a really, really good shepherd. Can you trust him? Are you trusting him? He's worthy of it all, amen? So let me pray, and I'm going to invite the worship team back up. And then I'm going to invite in, uh, with the worship team, um, our interns that we get a host for this season. So uh, I'll introduce them to you as we pray. Lord, thank you so much for the time that we get to spend with you. Lord, it is a hard thing to follow you, but you're worth it, Lord. We see the gruesomeness of the cross, and we know that you took that because of us, because you had us in mind. 
And so, Jesus, we respond with such humility, such willingness to be changed and shaped and fashioned by you. Lord, be patient in the process. This is a hard thing. But I thank you that you are the example. And as you command, you will enable. So, fill us with your strength. Fill us with faith to be obedient to your word. For your name's sake, for your kingdom cause. In Jesus' name we pray and say, amen, amen. amen.